Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 196, Santa Claus. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number 31 from Chris Pearson. And it is the last one from the forgotten tape of fall 1989. The message is 54 seconds long. Here we go. That's like a Christmas version of Slavomir, is what that is, right? Maybe it's approaching Christmas time. Um, the song Slavomir, which I wrote up on um, Barry Avenue. When we were there, I remember I, I had this little tiny attic apartment, and there were two side by side, and one of them was the, the guy living there was maybe a relative of the the guy who owned the building, the homeowner. He was this sweet old uh, Eastern European guy. And um, he liked it that I was an artist. I think he kind of felt like he was a patron uh, of the arts by letting me live there. And he actually gave me a month free at one point to draw his Christmas. Actually, I mean, I did it twice. I drew his Christmas card for him and he gave me a month free rent twice. And his nephew or his relative was a guy named Slavomir who lived there and um, he had a girlfriend that would visit sometimes. Sometimes in the heat of romance, I would hear the woman call his name, Slavomir, Slavomir, Slavomir. And from there, that's where the song came. I always thought it was sort of a butthole surfer's ripoff. But um, I love that little apartment. It was so tiny, but it had that outdoor space that I liked. And, you know, I was a bike rider back then. And I'd always just zip out the alley. I felt like Batman taken out of the Batcave when I'd go out my back door into that alleyway and then into the Chicago nights. But the apartment was so small. It was probably only 300 square feet. A little claustrophobic. I remember it was all carpeted. There's just the tiniest kitchen, the tiniest bathroom, and then this open living space. So, you know, having that deck made the place about 20% larger, probably. Remember the plastic sheeting I had up there? It was kind of open. I wanted it to be more private in that area. So I bought these sheets at a hardware store of, maybe it was colored plastic. They're probably three by eight foot sheets or something like that. And I had them really, it was just really rickety the way I put it up there. Was so Maybe I drilled some holes and sort of wired it to the existing you know, wall around the deck. I remember when I was doing it, one of the sheets fell down and almost hit this little kid in the backyard. It just would have been awful. It would have like just sliced her in half probably. Was it kind of an attic apartment? Yes, yeah, it was an attic. There was a slanted roof. You, you know, you couldn't even stand up if you were you know, on the edges there. I had this little futon, so in my sleeping area, it didn't really matter. 
my rent actually went up there because it was a nicer neighborhood. I think I was paying two and a quarter to two fifty for that place. And, and it was right. It was right by that club. It's it's now called Shuba's. I saw the butthole surfers there. I saw Big Black there. Um, it was, but it was called Gaspar's at the time. You know, if we were going to see a concert there, everyone would go to my place and cram into my little attic um, or onto the balcony, and you know, we'd have some beers and smoke weed or whatever before the show, and then then walk over there. Did that Slavomir guy ever hear what well, you know? Song? The apartments were right next to each other. And it'd be kind of a ballsy thing to be singing Slavomir while Slavomir is like within earshot, right? Like he was kind of a big, big guy. Like I don't, he might not like it. We had a few versions of the song there. We might have done more of an instrumental version with like a whispered Slavomir maybe in that apartment. And the all out Slavomirs could have happened down in Fry Street. Like I remember screaming it down there. But of course, at that point, we were three miles away from the actual Slavomir. It was our opening song when we did that funny show for those hippie kids, the lab school concert we did. It was like in a basement space and they had like a weekly type of performance deal. There might have been poets, you know, it was real sort of bohemian. And that was a perfect audience, right? A bunch of artsy 18 year olds, you know, it was fun to do. And they were kind of blown away. I remember the one show where, where I took off my skirt and I like pranced yeah, it, around naked. That was in a place called Batteries Not Included. The whole week before that show, I walked around putting up signs. I made all these posters and I put them up all over the place. And I think we probably got about like 10 people to go or something or 15 people. And it was a crazy show. I remember I remember we had like face paint on, all, lots of like colored sort of laid, laid low paint. And my girlfriend at the time, Kathy, took her sister there who was also just like completely like befuddled by what, you know, what, what they saw. Um, there was a woman in the audience who, who gave me her number. Um, you know, you're amazing. You know, you guys are great, you know, and we wound up hanging out after that and dating for a while. So she was my one and only groupie, I think, that I ever had. At one level, I'm amazed that I was willing to strip naked on stage at the end of our performance at Batteries Not Included. I don't recall if it was planned or just inspired by the moment. On the other hand, I had worked as a nude model for several years at that point, both at the University of Chicago and the Art Institute. I got my start posing while I was an undergraduate taking a figure drawing class with Professor Bob Peters. One day, our scheduled model did not show up, and Peters was about to set up some chairs for us to draw instead. So I told him I'd be willing to step in under two conditions. First, that I was paid, and second, that I would not lose points for missing the class. He agreed, and without hesitation, I slipped off my shirt and pants. At the time, I went without underwear, which made getting naked less complicated. The bar, batteries not included, located on North Clybourne in Lincoln Park, was one of those marginal joints that briefly provided a venue for minor acts like us. Based on the few mentions it received in the press, the club apparently started featuring jazz around 1986 and switched to rock in 87. 
You Chicago Female Rockers Barbie Army performed there in 1988, probably the same year as Open Sauce. In 1991, the Chicago Tribune announced the club's grand reopening after renovations, but after that, it was no longer listed as a music venue. Instead, it became a Caribbean restaurant, first under the name Batteries Not Included, then as Chez Delphonse. By 2007, it had become a standard American bar. And is now called Bex. From what I can tell, it still does not feature live music. In contrast, gas bars on the corner of Belmont and Southport, where Chris saw the Butthole Surfers, has endured as a venue at least since 1970, when it was called the Golden Palace and hosted Big Bill Schaefer and the Nashville Cats. Wednesday through Sunday, it became Gaspar's around 1977, and in 1989 changed to Shuba's, which to this day presents musical artists several nights a week. Although I'm not sure if any of them disrobe mid-performance. If you're looking for someone to pose in the nude, I'm a little rusty, but contact me. At pfoch dot com, that's p f o t s c h dot com. Many thanks to Chris for his Christmas song, and thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.